Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And this is part two of the mysterious disappearance of Heather Elvis. So if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you do that like before. Yeah. So just stop, pause this episode, go back to the previous episode. It is part one of the mysterious disappearance of Heather Elvis. And before we move on, we have three lovely patrons that we would love to shout out. Fatima. Macy. And Alyssa. Thank you guys so much for your support. And those of you who continue to support us every day, we really appreciate it. All right. Well, let's get into it. All right. Let's go. When we left off in our story, there were allegations that Heather was pregnant with Sydney's baby. And we know from various witnesses that Tammy was well aware of the rumors. As we discussed in part one, Heather Elvis, under her username Moonchild, posted on her Twitter account, Once upon a time, an angel and a devil fell in love. It did not end well. That would turn out to be profoundly prophetic. Heather never could have known the ending would be far worse than a broken heart. She never could have imagined it would end in her death. But that is what the prosecution in the many trials to come believed that Tammy Moore was planning during her three-week family trip to Disneyland with Sydney and their three children. Because within a week of returning from that trip, Heather Elvis would never be heard from again. In an interview with Matt Gutman with ABC News, Tammy Moore would defy a judge's gag order and told the world that she believed that Heather had disappeared of her own volition, wanting to get away from Myrtle Beach and her family and friends. It was an absurd allegation because almost immediately following Heather's disappearance, police knew that both Sydney and Tammy were involved in her disappearance. And for those of you who might not know what a gag order is, The judge ordered Tammy to not discuss this case or anything relating to it publicly, and as we mentioned, she went against that. Police began their investigation by calling Sydney Moore two days after Heather disappeared. And during that call, Sydney blatantly lied to them on the phone about speaking to Heather in the early morning hours of December 18th. That is when they knew that they had to talk to Sydney in person. But what would be the reason for him to lie if he were innocent. The police showed up at Sydney's home around two o'clock in the morning without a warning or an invitation and asked if they could come inside and look around. The Moors gave them permission and the officer took about 27 photos of the house, which was extremely cluttered and dirty. They also noticed security cameras both inside and outside of the home. This would turn out to be a huge investigative failure because by the time police returned with a warrant, the surveillance equipment had been disposed of and replaced with a brand new system, which didn't begin recording until December 21st, mind you, three days after Heather's disappearance. So maybe it's a coincidence, but does it seem a little suspicious that they replaced a whole new security system three days after Heather's disappearance? What were they trying to hide? Later, there would be allegations of targeted harassment between the Elvis family and the Moore family. The Elvis family reported graffiti and threats of physical intimidation. The Moore family alleged that someone had shot at Sydney, only hitting their trash cans instead. The implication being that it was either Terry Elvis or someone sympathetic to his family. 
Now, as for Sydney's wife, Tammy, she was a big fan of airing her grievances on Facebook. And one of her posts, it stated, quote, enough is enough. And today, this family will start filing charges against everyone we possibly can. I will no longer feel sorry for you or let ignorance be your excuse. With that being said, we do not owe this to any of you, but here are the facts. Sydney cooperated with the Horry County Police Department from the second he was contacted. He spoke with them over the phone and voluntarily went over to the offices in Conway to speak with detectives in person. That same day, I allowed HCPD to come inside our home to look around. They also asked to look through our home." End quote. And all of this is true. Sydney did go to the police station and give an interview, but he didn't tell the truth. In fact, he only admitted to indisputable truths when presented with strong evidence. According to the book entitled Missing and Presumed Dead by Michael Fleeman, Sydney told investigators that there is no relationship. There was a relationship and I broke it off. When asked when the last time he spoke to Heather was, he said it was at least six weeks earlier. However, after being shown evidence that he spoke with Heather over a four-minute phone call on the last day of her life, he admitted to a brief phone call. He said that Heather called him, begging him to take her back, and he told her that he couldn't, and he turned his phone off and went to sleep. But this contradicted statements he gave later in the interview, which he admitted to no longer having access to his phone. He told authorities that Tammy took his phone and changed the password and wouldn't give it back until he had earned her trust again. He told them he gave his wife full control over his life because he was trying to fix his marriage and keep his family together. This must have pained Tammy to not have been able to answer these questions for him in the interview. He denied ever going up to Peachtree Landing at the time Heather went missing. Sydney also told them that since Tammy found out about his affair, she started going to work with him every night. He was no longer allowed to go anywhere alone. In fact, he told investigators that he couldn't have been involved in Heather's disappearance because he was handcuffed to Tammy's bed. As part of his effort to reestablish trust, he agreed to be handcuffed to the bed at night for a minimum period of six months. On the night Heather disappeared, he told investigators that he and Tammy went to work and he believed they finished work by 12.30 or 1 a.m. When asked if they went home, Sydney explained that they drove to two different parking lots and had sex. Tammy was forcing Sydney to recreate his relationship with Heather. That is also part of why Sydney was forced to sell his previous truck. Tammy refused to go in a truck where Sydney and Heather had had sex. In the new truck, Sydney was required to take Tammy to all the places he had sex with Heather and have sex with Tammy in those same places. So Sydney continues with his story. Sydney told investigators after he had marital relations with Tammy, he got gas and then he went to Walmart and bought a pregnancy test. Now, the pregnancy test sparked interest in the detectives because they knew that there were allegations that Heather might have been pregnant. And actually, when they searched Heather's apartment, there was a pregnancy test wrapper in her trash, but not the test stick results. Police surmised Heather may have taken that test stick with her on the night she went to Peachtree Landing to prove to Sydney that she was pregnant with his baby. Now, we do know from Jessica Cook, Heather's boss, in an interview she gave to ABC News that Heather had taken a pregnancy test at work the week prior to her disappearance. Jessica said the results said error because Heather didn't add enough urine to the test stick. 
Heather told Jessica she didn't want to know and didn't want to take another test. Sydney insisted that the pregnancy test was for 42-year-old Tammy and not for any nefarious reasoning involving Heather. Receipts would later back up Sydney's story that he stopped at Walmart to buy a cigar and a pregnancy test. Sydney said his wife stayed in the car while he went in and bought the test. Then he told officers he drove to another parking lot where he and Tammy again recreated a sexual encounter he had previously had with Heather. Surveillance cameras and receipts back up this story. But Sydney did leave something off his itinerary the night Heather disappeared. He told them he headed home by 2.30 in the morning, and later he would change it to 3.30 in the morning. Next, he said that he was in bed with his wife when he got the early morning phone call from Heather at around 3.38 a.m. He said Tammy was next to him and she allowed him to answer the phone and speak with Heather. When police asked him if he made a call by payphone, he said, do they still make payphones? Then he denied making the call just as he had originally denied answering the first call. But evidence had Sydney's cheesy payphone joke staring at him in the face when police confronted him with surveillance footage of him heading to a payphone at a gas station. So he admitted it was him calling Heather. Now police had confirmed that Sydney had spoken to Heather twice that night and initially denied both calls. Clearly caught in two lies, Sydney said, let's start from the beginning again and I'll tell you the whole thing. Quote, I tell my wife almost everything, almost everything. I'm trying to fix what we have slowly gotten back. We drove across the country. We talked while the kids were sleeping in the car. We're talking the whole time, trying to work all this crap out. She had a boyfriend and I was goofing around. So we were trying to work all of that out. So that's why I made the phone call without her knowing, just trying so it doesn't disrupt what we slowly had taken almost a month to get back to normal, end quote. He said that Heather had been leaving notes on his truck asking to speak with him. He said that he made the payphone call because Tammy still had his phone. He stated this was his first opportunity away from Tammy and he was worried that she would find one of Heather's notes. That payphone call was at 1.38 in the morning, and police knew he made it right after purchasing the pregnancy test at Walmart. Police believed Sydney, at Tammy's direction, was planning to lure Heather to a remote location where they would force her to take a test. Sydney said that the first night he got back into town, Heather had left a note on his car, and he was terrified of Tammy finding out since she was going to work with him every night. Sydney told law enforcement, quote, I threw both away because I didn't want my wife to think I was communicating with her. And that's why I called her the night from the payphone. Please, can you stop? Just stop. End quote. He lied again and said that the call was less than a minute long. But police told him it was almost a five-minute phone call. A lot can be said in five minutes. And it's a lot more than what he's willing to admit. It also contradicted Heather's roommate. Brianna Whirlman, Heather's roommate, later testified at trial and in an interview with ABC News that Heather called her that night after speaking to Sydney after his call from the payphone. She was crying hysterically and told Brianna that Sydney called her to tell her that he left his wife and was in love with her and wanted her to take him back. Brianna made Heather promise not to call him back or entertain his offer. 
Brianna disliked Sydney and wanted Heather to sleep on the decision and come to her senses. Heather promised she would sleep on it, but evidently changed her mind. Law enforcement told Sydney about this conversation, and he said Heather either lied to her friend or the friend was lying. Sydney repeated, I am not leaving my wife, and I have no intention of leaving my wife. That is when the interview began to get contentious. Interviewers told Sydney that they thought Tammy acted more like a 20-year-old than a 42-year-old. They told him that Tammy obviously wore the pants in the marriage and was domineering. They asked him how he felt being treated like a child, losing privileges, and being chained to his own bed. They kept confronting him and telling him that he wouldn't have contacted Heather out of the blue without Tammy's permission. They asked him if Tammy forced him to contact Heather and things got out of control and maybe Heather got hurt by Tammy. Unfortunately, Sydney was more afraid of Tammy than the authorities and continued to deny he saw Heather that night. But we know from phone records that after Heather spoke with Brianna, she tried to call Sydney back at the payphone eight times. All of those calls went unanswered. Then, from cell phone records, we know that Heather drove to the parking lot for Longbeard's Bar and Grill, where Tammy and Sydney earlier had sex. Police surmised that Heather was looking for Sydney and probably expected to find him at work. Then suddenly, from cell phone records, Heather drove back home. She called Sydney's cell phone four times. One of those times, Sydney picked up. After speaking to him for less than five minutes, Heather and her phone headed directly to the secluded Peachtree Landing area, which was 1.4 miles from Sydney's home down a dead-end street. A neighbor surveillance camera picked up Heather and her intrepid heading to the landing. Once there, Heather's cell phone called Sydney's cell phone four more times. None of them were answered. Her last phone call was made at 3.41 a.m., nine minutes after Heather's car was seen heading to the landing. The neighbor's same surveillance camera picked up a black F-150 King Cab heading down the same road. And at this time, the Moors owned one of the only two trucks that color and style in the state. Seven minutes later, that same truck is captured heading back the way it came from and now heading back towards Sydney's house. Sydney's truck had GPS inside of it, but that night was the only night the SD card was removed from the truck, preventing it from tracking the truck's whereabouts. The GPS was disconnected just hours before Heather disappeared. Whatever happened to Heather took place in a matter of minutes. Police believed if Heather had her missing positive pregnancy test with her that night, it probably sealed her fate. Police knew the only way to solve what happened to Heather Elvis was to put pressure on the Moors and get them to turn on each other. They were very interested in the family's three-week road trip to Disneyland in November, a month before Heather vanished. Police discovered that Tammy didn't seem to be interested in saving the marriage, as Sydney stated. Because during the trip on December 6th, she texted one of her friends, I do not love him. He betrayed me, and I will never, ever forgive or forget it. Trust me, there is zero love on my end. I fucking hate him. It is what it is. I've turned down a lot of hot dick, especially early in my first year of marriage. It truly doesn't hurt. 
I fell out of love with him two years ago. Now he has to stay chained to my bed until further notice, while I live my life as a single mom. Police later discovered Tammy was sexting with a 48-year-old man from New Jersey, who she referred to as her boyfriend. She was also trying to find someone closer to home to help her seek revenge against Sydney for cheating. We'll discuss him a little later in the episode. In addition to trying to solve Heather's disappearance, the police had to monitor an ongoing feud between the Elvis and Moore family. The Elvis family were very open from the beginning about their beliefs that the Moore family was involved in their daughter's disappearance, but they did at least initially ask the public to allow the police to perform their investigation and have patience. Tammy had a different approach. Once Sydney's affair with Heather became public knowledge, she took to Facebook to defend herself. She stated, well, Sydney cheated on me in the months of September and October with a psycho whore who has since went missing, and now her daddy is threatening to kill my children and Sydney, therefore making Sydney stupid. This girl grabbed his business card out of the office at his workplace and had fantasies about him as far as March, but talked about it in July, naming him. I don't know any other word to describe my husband at this point. All you have to do is research this girl's Twitter, although four months of it has gone missing in the past couple weeks, and her Tumblr to see who this twisted person truly is. I could care less being that I had a boyfriend of my own the past couple years, but when someone brings my children into the scenario, it's a whole nother story. I will not tolerate anyone hurting my children because my husband banged a hoe three times in the back of her car and nothing more. I could care less who he screwed around with, but the fact that this jerk is stalking my family is unacceptable. By jerk, she means Terry Elvis and friends of the Elvis family. A member of the same church attended by the Elvis family began conducting his own investigation, even finding evidence in interviewing neighbors of the Moors. He was later charged with impersonating a police officer and obstruction of justice. But police were trying their best to give justice to the Elvis family. On February 21, 2014, police arrested both Sidney and Tammy Moore. They were initially arrested for indecent exposure and obstruction of justice. The indecent exposure charges related to their two public encounters of sex the night that Heather disappeared. The obstruction charge was against Sydney for originally lying about making the payphone call to Heather on the night that she was lured away to her probable death. On the 23rd, the DA had elevated the charges to include kidnapping. And again on the 24th, the charges were elevated once more, this time for murder. The motive behind the arrest wasn't because the DA's office agreed they had enough evidence to support the charge of murder. Instead, they were hoping it would get one of the Moors to turn on the other. Their strategy failed. Neither of the Moors were willing to testify against each other or point the finger for a deal. They remained in custody for almost a year. 
Despite the objections by the DA in the Elvis family, on January 30th, 2015, Judge Dennis Markley Jr. granted bond for each of them in the amount of $100,000 with special conditions. The conditions included both having to wear a GPS ankle monitor and not be within a five-mile radius of the Elvis family. They were also not allowed to leave the state for any reason. On August 6, 2015, Sidney's attorney asked the judge for special consideration to leave the state to seek employment. As a result of the publicity, local restaurants were no longer willing to hire Sidney. However, his client, the Olive Garden, offered him his same position in the state of Florida to service their kitchen equipment after hours. Again, Judge Markey granted his request with certain conditions. Sidney had to continue wearing his ankle monitor and stay confined to home detention when he wasn't working. He had to provide his new address to the court, and he needed a letter from his employer confirming his employment. The Moores stayed in their Disney-themed camper while they were in Florida, while Tammy continued to homeschool their three children. Tammy was also allowed to work part-time waiting tables. On March 10th, 2016, the DA dropped the murder charges, the indecent exposure charge, and the obstruction of justice charges. The Elvis family was devastated. Sidney Moore was livid too. Like Tammy, he took to Facebook shortly after the murder charges were dropped. In his post, he stated, All I'm asking is for you to keep an open mind. I'm not out to hurt anyone, and I have no hard feelings towards Heather. It was just a blowjob, and if that comes across as insensitive, I do apologize, but that's what it was. All the lies and bullshit the news reported on would have messed with anyone's head that did not know us. And they should have done follow-ups on all the false information they leaked, but they never will. That's how the news media works. They spread lies and gossip, but when the truth is exposed, they refuse to air that. They refuse to air their mistakes. But the DA wasn't done with Sidney or Tammy Moore. They decided with neither of them turning on each other, they would take a more conservative approach to the charges. They only had one bite at the apple for the murder charges, and without a body, the DA felt it was an uphill battle. Instead, they began with kidnapping and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. That way, they still had the option of filing murder charges at a later date. Sidney went on trial first. He was also charged again with obstruction of justice for lying to the police about making the payphone call. This trial would end in mistrial. The jury deliberated for seven hours and couldn't decide on a verdict. However, on August 30th, 2017, Sidney was found guilty for obstruction of justice and sentenced to 10 years in jail. While he was awaiting the retrial on kidnapping charges, Tammy went on trial for the same charges, kidnapping and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. Her trial began on October 8th, 2018. The prosecutor in Tammy's case, Nancy Livesay, presented her as the mastermind behind Heather's kidnapping. She told the jury that Tammy couldn't live with the fact her husband was seeing someone else, someone younger and someone prettier. There was also more evidence presented in Tammy's trial than Sydney's first trial. Tammy's trial lasted 11 days with over 30 witnesses. 
Tammy herself took the stand for two days. This would turn out to be an extremely unwise decision. On direct examination, where her attorney asked her questions, she did fine. However, on cross-examination is where she began to unravel. Cross-examination is when the attorney from the opposing party questions the witness, and this usually reveals information that wasn't disclosed during direct examination, and that's where Tammy's true colors seeped through. When answering questions, she would smirk, look at the jury, and then give her answers directly to them, behaving as though they were gotcha moments. She acted smug and self-righteous and even had the audacity to ask the judge if she was allowed to ask questions back. Then she insisted on calling the DA by her first name, something the DA pointed out by asking if they were acquainted enough to be on a first-name basis. This seemed to amuse Tammy, and she continued to do it repeatedly, never realizing how she was coming off to the jury. The DA showed the jury a surveillance video where Tammy and her sister were shown crawling around in her front yard, looking under fountains and planters with a mirror. It's clear that from the video, the two were looking for a listening device. Despite the mirror clearly in her hand, she denied it was a mirror and told the jury she was pulling weeds and recommended it to tighten the booty. In another surveillance video shown to the jury, it depicted Sydney and Tammy spending four hours detailing their brand new F-150 two days after Heather's disappearance. In the video, they paid particular attention to the backseat area. Everything that came out of that truck, from the gloves to cleaning supplies, rags, and the remnants of the vacuum cleaner bag, all went into a burn pile. There was also surveillance evidence and cell phone records showing that starting on the day Tammy and Sydney got back from California, Tammy's cell phone immediately began stalking Heather's phone. Wherever Heather went, Tammy's phone was in constant pursuit, sometimes waiting hours before following her to the next location. The state argued that Tammy was enraged by her husband's affair with a young, pretty girl, and that anger boiled over when Tammy discovered Heather was pregnant. She wasn't going to allow anyone else to give birth to Sydney's child. She wouldn't allow that baby to be born. During cross-examination, Tammy was asked about handcuffing Sydney to their bed. And Tammy testified that the handcuffs were used for fun and it was for intimate reasons and that they were never used for punishment. Tammy was shown text messages with her sister where she admitted to handcuffing Sydney to the bed. Yet she still looked right at the jury and denied it, saying it was only for sex play. Next, the jury heard all about the video that Tammy sent to Heather depicting Sydney performing oral sex on her. While it doesn't prove guilt, it shows a level of petty, jealousy, and immaturity. When Prosecutor Livesay suggested that Heather was pregnant, Tammy couldn't hide the look of disgust on her face. Another piece of evidence in Tammy's trial was the fact that Tammy gave Sydney back his phone the day after Heather disappeared. Why was Sydney suddenly trustworthy again with an electronic device? On top of that revelation, according to phone records, Tammy stopped going to work with Sydney the day after Heather disappeared. Perhaps the biggest surprise witness was from Tammy's own cousin, Donald D. Marino. 
He testified that he was at a family barbecue at the Moore compound when Sidney Moore pulled out a flip phone and showed him a photo of Heather Elvis. Due to pre-trial motions and the fact that this wasn't a murder trial, DeMarino wasn't able to fully describe what he saw in the photo. However, he made it clear Heather wasn't alive in the photo, and he didn't expect her to ever appear again. If there was ever a murder trial, then the details about this photo would likely come into evidence. He also testified that Sidney told him he had to take the picture for Tammy as evidence. The infliction being Tammy is the one who ordered Heather murdered and Sydney is the one who committed the act. And perhaps the most important witness was the FBI headlight expert. He testified that he could definitively state that it was Tammy and Sydney's truck caught on surveillance video headed down the dead-end street that ended at Peachtree Landing the night Heather disappeared. It was also the same truck on video that came back from Peachtree Landing seven minutes later. In an effort to create a defense, Tammy alleged to the police from day one that Sydney's affair didn't matter to her because they had an open marriage. Many witnesses throughout the trial denied this. In fact, it was only in retaliation that Tammy unsuccessfully attempted to get back at Sydney. One witness was Kevin Michael Hummel, a 48-year-old New Jersey resident with long rocker hair, and according to the book of Michael Fleeman, had a modest resume as a low-level musician. Hummel testified that he mostly did bar gigs and theater work, and comically on the stand told the jury, you probably have never heard of me. He stated he first met Tammy back in 1988. He testified that Tammy contacted him in 2013 when she first discovered Sydney's affair. And that is the man she referred to as her boyfriend when she spoke to the police. He stated, Basically, it was essentially like sexual in nature. I was single. She was looking for somebody to basically have sex with. I was all about that. That was pretty much what everything was about. He testified that their entire relationship was limited to phone sex, and he hadn't seen her in person until her trial. Of note was the fact that once Heather disappeared, their phone sexting relationship was magically over. It seemed like Heather's disappearance solved quite a few issues in the Moore marriage. Sexting was over, Sydney got his phone back, Tammy stopped going to work with Sydney, and Sydney was no longer handcuffed to the bed. But we did learn all about Tammy's attempts at, quote, cougar life, end quote. In fact, that was one of her internet searches after she found out about Sydney's affair. She wanted to know all about cougar life. Sydney was with someone who was barely 20, and Tammy aimed to go lower. Tammy began sending texts to her friend's 17-year-old son. In one text, she told him, I want you, Caleb. And in another, she said, you don't even know, I want to fuck the hell out of you. Now, this all ended when Caleb's mother found the text and told Tammy to leave her son out of her acts of depravity. After Caleb testified, Tammy's attorney said the texts were the most blush-worthy language and believed they prejudiced the jury against his client. He asked for a mistrial, which was denied. The trial ended with prosecutor Livesay using a Disney comparison. She discussed Tammy's obsession with all things Disney and likened her to the witch in the Snow White fairy tale. One day, Tammy looked in the mirror and asked, who was the fairest of them all? And the answer came back with a fresh-faced, angelic-looking Heather Elvis. It was a powerful closing argument and drew upon the heart of this case. 
which came down to Jealousy by Tammy Moore. It took the jury less than three hours to convict Tammy of kidnapping and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. In Tammy's statement made to the court, she said, quote, I'm a mom to four kids because I have an extra one right now that I'm looking out for. They don't have anybody else. They don't live in the state. We had to leave the state because of harassment. They don't have anyone else to care for them and they need their mom and I don't know what else to say to you. I am Heather's number one advocate. I want to know what happened to Heather probably as much as her parents do. I want to know what happened to her. I have nothing to do with her disappearance. I never met her. I never seen her. End quote. Terry Elvis spoke next and he asked the judge to sentence Tammy consecutively rather than concurrently on both charges. Unfortunately, with Tammy's clean record, there wasn't a cause for that type of sentencing enhancement. Heather's mother, Debbie Elvis, spoke next. She stated that they won't release our daughter. They kept her and won't let her go. Five years later, they're still holding her hostage. They stole her life and ruined ours. I'm asking you to give Tammy the maximum sentence you can. I ask that you give her that because she deserves it, because Heather can't stand here for herself, end quote. On October 23, 2018, Tammy Moore was sentenced to 30 years in prison on each count with both sentences to run concurrently. Almost a year later, on September 18, 2019, Sidney Moore was also convicted of kidnapping Heather Elvis and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. He also received 30 years in prison, each sentenced to run concurrently. If and when Heather Elvis's body is finally found, it's likely that both Sydney and Tammy would be tried for her murder. Her family believes the answers still lie with Tammy and Sydney. They believe eventually that one of them will talk and they will be able to bring Heather home. On the Facebook page they keep in her memory, they have a standing offer of $2,000 to be deposited to the commissionary account of any prisoner who can tell them where to find Heather's body. The offer states, we ask that you continue to keep Heather's hope alive and spread the word that we are looking for someone in one of these facilities to step forward if they hear anything of significance. Tammy is housed at the Leith Correctional Facility for Women in Greenwood, and Sydney is housed in the Lee Correctional Facility in Bishopville. It has been years of never-ending heartache for the Elvis family, each year marking the anniversary of her disappearance, and each year hoping this will be the year that they finally get to bring her home. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you're listening, and we will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs>